Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 98 of I Wish You Were Dead. My name is Mike. Over there is Gavin and Fia. And we are coming up on episode 100 real quick, everybody. Yeah, we sure are. It's uh, it's getting a little freaky. Because uh, <laughs> I think actually... Oh, because, oh is it? Be, because of a, uh, of a couple of things. I think that episode 100 actually falls on the two-year anniversary. I'll have to actually check that. Um, There's no way that that can't be true because that well, it should be episode. No, no, I guess you're right. I was thinking of 102, but it should be 104. But Never even mind. still, like it should be like it shouldn't fall on the exact day. Or I mean, it it would be the anniversary episode. Okay, is what I was gotcha. thinking, but I think I'm wrong. I'll have to actually look between this this week and next week. But um, yeah, there'll be some changes coming along with episode 100. But I'm pretty excited about the topic. No spoilers yet. That'll be for next week. Uh, I don't even know what it is, everybody, so... Oh, no, I haven't told anyone yet. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm I'm pretty excited. to talk to Liz. Oh, I haven't even told her. Ah! No, I keep her just as much in the dark as I do everybody else. And she hates it. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so, today... Even though we're we're not going to be spoiling what episode one hundred is today, we're going to be talking about the end Triassic mass extinction, which is number four of the quote unquote big five mass extinctions. As we uh, slowly work our way through each of the geologic time slices, uh, yeah. So this is a uh, one that's going to be pretty interesting. But before that, we have some some housekeeping notes from Via. Yes, we do. So, again, don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Give us feedback about the show and any future topics you'd like to hear on the podcast. If you want to be a guest on the show, be sure to fill out the guest form, and all these things can be found in the show notes. And just real quick, Gavin, uh, what else will we be talking about next episode? Yeah, we added this after last episode. Like an actual section in our notes reminding me to tell people because I keep forgetting. And you forgot. Uh, I sure did. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Next week, uh, we're going to be sort of just recapping news from uh, this week is the 2022 uh, meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. And there's always a lot of good uh, news that comes out of there. So we're just going to be going through recapping some of uh, the, the neat news that comes out of SVP. Uh, if it happens to be a particularly uneventful SVP, uh, I'll come up with something else. But that's uh, that's the plan for next week. Cool. Speaking of science meetings, I would like to transition into Swamp Corner this week uh, that I went to my first ever research conference this past weekend. Yay. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, the conference that I went to is called the Gulf Estuarian Research Society meeting. Uh, it's GERS for short. Gers. Yeah, Gers. <laughs> There's also like, I guess, seven other affiliate uh, estuary research societies. I think there's an Atlantic oh. one, a Pacific one, a Canadian one, like a whole bunch of them. And uh, wow. yeah, so this is just the, the Gulf one. Um, and it was in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Uh, I learned a lot of cool things, mostly about uh, seagrass and um, oysters which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then uh, I actually presented a poster uh, at the conference as well. Woo. Yeah. All my, right. My poster was about uh, comparing sampling methods for 
oyster, uh, things that live on oyster reefs. I used um, like traditional methods, which are just uh, trays that you soak in the water and collect them later, or suction sampling, which is uh, basically a glorified underwater vacuum. And mm-hmm. I love talking about <laughs> it because it's so fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, that's pretty much all I have for Swamp Corner over here. That's awesome. Do you have a, a link to, because I know when you sort of present at a, at a conference, uh, you know, it's not like you give like a, a talk or anything or publish a, a whole paper, but they do, do, they do usually publish the abstract. So do you have a link to that? Um, I'm sure I could find one. Cool. So uh, if that happens, it will be down in the show notes if anybody's yeah. curious. All right. So with that done, Mike, what do you have for us this week for Today in History? All right, so I just want to quickly tell everyone here a story. Uh, I'm going to give you the short version. I think you two have both heard this about one of the times I got in trouble when I was teaching. One um, of the times? Yeah, no, it's been more than once. But oh, yeah. um, one of the times I got in trouble um, was during the pandemic. Um, I made a video for my kids that said slavery was bad. And yes, I do remember you telling it. Mm-hmm. At least me this. I don't know if Fia has heard this one. I think uh, I Based have. on the noise Fia just made, I think Fia heard it. <laughs> um, and then and then I got a phone call from my principal who shall go uh, unnamed who called me and said that I had to delete that lesson because a parent got upset that I was pushing my beliefs onto students when I said that slavery was bad um, and so I've told that story to every class I've ever had since and just to make sure they're all on board with the whole slavery's bad thing Yeah, which that is a, uh, a resounding podcast endorsement that yes, yeah, sla- right. slavery that bad. is the official if, if not the official bad. position of school that uh, I worked at at one time, uh, <laughs> it is uh, it is certainly the position of I wish you were dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Slavery, keep it dead. Um, so <laughs> um, I bring that up because today's um, today in history actually involves um, a, uh, a dead man. Um, so are you guys familiar with a guy named John Brown? Vaguely. Yeah. Um, so John Brown, one of my favorite guys from history. I think he's a little bit too famous to do a today in history on, like, but maybe not. Uh, I'm, I won't steal your thunder. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. What do you got? Wasn't he just like this crazy guy who went around messing with the Confederates? Um, close. A- absolutely crazy. What I would tell my students is that um, is that me and John Brown have two things in common. Is that uh, number one? We both hated slavery, and number two, we were both just like absolutely insane. <laughs> and so he would go um, during uh, there was an event in Kansas called Bleeding Kansas, um, mm-hmm. where Kansas was in the process of becoming a state, and they were trying to figure out do we have slavery or not. And the people of Kansas were going to vote on it. And John Brown, along with a bunch of other people, showed up there basically like to go to war, show up there to start shooting people. Uh, John Brown killed like five people that were pro-slavery. It was awesome. And then (laughs) in 1859, he's got this idea. Again, John Brown, crazy. He's got this idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to break into a federal armory. I'm going to steal a bunch of guns and give them to slaves. That's what he did. Right. Slaves are going to, you know, have their their own uprising here and it's going to be awesome. Okay. (sighs) Uh, Shockingly, this didn't actually work out in John Brown's favor. He, uh, he was captured. He was found guilty of um, uh, murder or treason, um, or possibly both. I forget exactly what it was. And uh, on today, November 2nd, 1859, John Brown, after being found guilty two days prior, 
John Brown was sentenced to hang um, and did so one month later. So this is the anniversary of John Brown getting his, uh, his criminal verdict, which is that he was hung for trying to free the slaves. And John Brown's one of my favorite Americans that's ever lived because, like I said, two things in common with me. Man hates slavery. <laughs> and that man was absolutely insane. And I love him for it. So that is today's uh, our Today in History, John Brown. Awesome. A, a very deserving Today in History, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, you've got to transition out of that one now, Gavin. So good yeah, luck. No, I don't have, I do not have a segue for that. Uh, but anywho. <laughs> you rarely do when it comes to me when I get going. See, Fia, well, this is a little behind, but behind the scenes stuff. Fia puts Swamp Corner in, uh, in the dock that we, that we share. Uh, Mike does not. Mike just kind of, uh, keeps Leroy us, Jenkins it. Yeah, that's exactly, that's the best way to put it. Uh, he just goes full Leroy Jenkins. And yeah. we have no idea what's about to happen. That's how the Antarctica thing happened. Um, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to uh, a few episodes ago. I think episode like 92 about Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, I sure didn't have a segue out of that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. This is this is how often that happens. I have no idea what you're talking about. I do not remember this even a little bit. Oh my goodness. How can uh, you not forget about that guy? I don't remember guy? the details, but I remember it involved somebody being more or less naked. Anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember that guy. I read a book on him in ninth grade English class. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's anyway. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, anyways. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Gavin, do your science thing. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the end Triassic mass extinction, one of the traditional quote-unquote big five mass extinctions along with the end ordovician the late devonian the end permian here the end triassic and then the end cretaceous mass extinction the one famous for wiping out the dinosaurs we've already talked about all of them except the triassic and the cretaceous full back catalog of all that but we're going to be talking about the end triassic today and so some general background about the Triassic period in general. It lasts from about 251 to 201 million years ago. So in the grand scheme of complex life on Earth, slightly after halfway. Okay. Between, you know, the beginning of the Cambrian period, 540-ish million years ago, and through to today. The Triassic is immediately after the end Permian mass extinction, the worst ever in history. We've talked about that, I think, an episode, I believe that was 89. And this period is completely defined by extinction. It's the only period that starts, and spoilers, ends uh, with major mass extinctions. Lots of other periods have them, but this one is the only one that starts and ends in major, major, major mass extinctions. Wow. And... The Triassic period is when life really starts to sort of look much more similar to today. Um, and that's partially because of that big extinction at the end of the Permian period that killed off a bunch of the old weird stuff that we don't have anymore. And while the end Triassic also killed off a bunch of old weird stuff, it was more similar weird stuff to what we have today uh, for reasons mm. that, that I'll get to. Things generally climactically in the Triassic period was still very warm and dry like they were in the Permian. Uh, Pangaea was still fully intact for the whole period. Um, however, some weird climatic stuff made it very, very seasonal 
in the Triassic. Uh, hmm. While the middle of Pangaea was very warm and very dry, there were very large monsoons that would happen along the coast, uh, including one period uh, sort of in the middle, middle end-ish of the Triassic where it rained a lot for like two million years straight. Hmm. And you can see that in, in rocks like all over the world for like two million years. Do you mean that literally? Yes. Like every single day, every second of the day. That's like, that's kind of impossible to know whether it was, you know, constant right. like that. But uh, from rocks pretty much all over the world, we have evidence of just greatly increased, you know, rain. Like I said, basically planet wide for a period of about 2 million years. Gotcha. And what do you mean by seasonal? So very much like... Um, Seasonal in the sense that a lot of tropical places are seasonal, where there's sort of, or I guess, subtropical, where there's a dry season and a and a wet season. Oh, okay. So not as much seasonal as like what we have where Mike and I currently are in the Northeast United States, where there wasn't yeah. really a defined, you know, summer, fall, winter, spring. Um, for most most people, generally agree that there really wasn't severe winters. Um, around the poles, there really wasn't all that much land, uh, but there was definitely some land, especially in the Antarctic Circle, where during the Southern Hemisphere winter, there would be no sunlight. So obviously some ice would and snow would form around there, but no serious like glaciers or anything on the planet like we have today. Um, and just generally warmer, so none of that ice would, would stick around. Um, but around most of Pangaea, especially on the coast, it would be very dry and then very wet for certain parts of the year. Mm. Cool. And then, as we get to sort of the end of the period, um, Pangaea is still together at the end of the Triassic, but it's starting to sort of come apart. And that that will come up again when we talk about the extinction. Sweet. So, in order to understand what happened during the extinction, the extinction, we have to talk about what life was doing at this time, because life was real strange at this time <laughs> because everything died uh, right before this. So when everything dies, you have a big bottleneck and then a bunch of open ecological niches that then need to be filled. And sometimes life gets real creative after extinctions and gets real weird. <laughs> so, First, we're going to talk about what, in my opinion, is the, the less exciting things because plants were not doing all that well in the Permian period to begin with. Like even before the extinction, it was just really hot and really dry. Uh, and especially a lot of the, the plants from the period before the Permian, the Carboniferous, that were very used to like global rainforests that then went to global desert were just not doing great. And the Triassic sort of continues that more or less global desert sort of vibe. Uh, however, some plants like the relatively recently evolved at this time, gymnosperms, which are things like your pines and spruces, as well as your ginkgos and cycads were spreading pretty widely because they could, they actually had seeds, which as we talked about, I think in the episode about the Carboniferous period, is like the plant version of like an enclosed egg. Yeah. Whereas, plant, yeah, plants like ferns and mosses need water to reproduce. Whereas if you have a seed, you can just take the water with you. So plants with seeds were doing pretty well compared to other plants. 
However, down in the southern hemisphere, where it was generally a bit more uh, wet, still pretty dry, but you know more precipitation generally than the northern hemisphere, uh, a group of plants called seed ferns, which is very misleading because they're not ferns, uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, they go extinct later on. We don't have those today, but imagine a somewhat woody looking fern kind of a weird thing to describe but yeah also a one of many cases of paleontologists being not good at naming things um what do you have like like the stem yeah so okay not quite tree like <laughs> um i guess i guess more well more tree like than ferns are i guess yeah <laughs> Again, it's it, it's a very strange group of plants, and especially with me not knowing plants all of that well. Yeah. Um, seed ferns are weird. I know they're very popular in uh, a lot of the rocks in this part of the world that I am in, sort of eastern, central-ish Pennsylvania, because some of the rocks are a bit older. Uh, seed ferns were doing mm -hmm. real well in the Carboniferous period when there were, like I said, all those global rainforests and stuff, but... Uh, did less well, even though they do have seeds, so they can take water with them with their with their babies. Uh, a little less dry adapted than things like pines and spruces are. Gotcha. And so, going back to, I guess that was a weird, unintentional segue to this next part. Um, those rainforests and marshes and swamps and stuff of the Carboniferous period were really good at making coal. And during the Permian, well a lot of the, you know, Pangaea was pretty dry. Around the coasts, it was still kind of swampy. So there was still a good amount of coal from the Permian. However, in the Triassic, especially the early Triassic, those were just gone as a result of the end Permian mass extinction. And that's why we see something called the coal gap, because there are, there are very few, few times in history where there, where there is no coal known at all. Uh, but the early Triassic is one of those times because the end Permian was just a really bad time for coal producing plants and, and swamp ecosystems. Hmm. Switching over to the better side of life, the animals. <laughs> Roasted. Oh, yeah. In the oceans, uh, a lot of groups that were abundant and made up the majority of their ecosystems in the Permian period and before uh, were, were just either not there anymore or greatly reduced. So... As we've talked about before, uh, the way we sort of break up geologic time is the, the big scale is eons, then eras, then periods. And so the Permian period was also the end of the Paleozoic era. So the Permian was literally the end of an era, which means the Triassic was the start of a new era. And the reason we sort of identify those is because we see a large difference in the life, the, the types of life that we see before and after. And so in the oceans is mostly what those boundaries are sort of based on because that's where we have the most data. That's where we have the most specimens from. And so these marine invertebrates are kind of your best friend. When, when you're trying to find the, the line between, you know, one time period and another. Yay, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so with those marine invertebrates, those things like brachiopods, sort of very clam-like or bivalve-like, but not they're different. Uh, they were <laughs> around, but doing much less well. They were a major part of ecosystems in the Permian and before no longer the case. 
Same thing with crinoids, which are related to starfish and, um, you know, other echinoderms. Also, still around, not doing nearly as well. While others became totally extinct. The trilobites, uh, little insect-like uh, arthropods that lived in all sorts of marine ecosystems, finally go extinct in the end Permian. Again, major part of the ecosystem before, no longer around. Lots of different types of corals. Major parts of that ecosystem before, no longer around. So what I'm trying to get across here is that marine ecosystems in the Triassic were very, very underpopulated. Um, and just like the coal gap, we see several uh, million years where there is a coral gap. There's just really no reefs of any kind, um, mm. or at least not any, you know, multicellular based reefs. Uh, there, when mass extinctions happen, there can be reefs made out of single cell cellular things because there's a lot less things around to eat them. Uh, right. Single celled things are pretty yummy when, when you're a snail or something. Um, so when there's a lot less snails and things to eat you, you can build your reefs like you want to. There's nothing keeping you down. Right. But after many, you know, a, a few million years of the dust settling, some new groups began to crop up in the Triassic and become much more widespread. Things like bivalves were already around doing their thing, but now cool. could actually be much more of a, an important role in the ecosystem. Looking at you, Fia. Yep. <laughs> uh, other things like the aminoids, previously, as we've called the swirly shelled squid boys, they show up for the first time. And new corals, the scleractinian corals, show up for the first time here. These are the same kind of corals that we have today. So brand new group of corals show up that we still have all the way till today. But we sure are doing our best to get rid of them. Uh, Why? Oh, oh, never mind. I understand. Mm -hmm. And we we will talk about that in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> cool. Um, as with most Extinction episodes, there is a little section to talk about, hey, this is looking real similar to today. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as for the other residents of the ocean, the fish, um, they were doing really well. Uh, Ray-finned fish, which is most fish that you're thinking of that are not sharks, uh, become much more widespread as the lobe-finned fish, things like coelacanths and lungfish, become much less common. So uh, previously, it was sort of the other way around. Our ancestors, the lobe-finned fish, were everywhere. And then around this time, because of the end Permian extinction, it just sort of flipped for one reason or another. And no one has any like explanations for that? I'm sure that there are some i don't okay. know necessarily what it is based on the groups of still fish looking uh lobe finned fish that we have today which are just the coelacanth and lungfish they tend to have much mm -hmm. lower metabolisms okay that could just be a consequence of where they live so coelacanths live in very low productivity environments so mm -hmm. they kind of need to have a low metabolism in order to just not starve yeah so it's it's kind of hard to know, but just off the top of my head, that would be my guess. I haven't seen any particular convincing research either way. Okay, that's fair. Once we get up onto land, though, we get looking at some of our amphibians, which were very common 
in uh, in the Carboniferous and the Permian. Uh, obviously doing less well in the Permian because it's really dry and then continuing to do less well in the Triassic because it's still dry. Um, but at this time, quote-unquote amphibians were quite large. Imagine sort of a salamander-like body with a crocodile-like head. Hmm. And, and also vaguely crocodile-sized. Um, that's what most amphibians were looking like at this time. Were hit really hard by the end Permian extinction. And all fully terrestrial amphibians, so things that do a similar thing as, as toads, where they're still amphibians, but they're very dry adapted. They can come out on land and they don't they can even live in deserts. They just need the water to reproduce. Things like that go extinct. Uh at the end of Permian. So in the Triassic, all we have left are these aquatic or semi-aquatic ones that did more or less okay. Things doing similar things as salamanders, but much larger. Gotcha. However, the modern group of amphibians called the Lys Amphibia, so that would be your frogs, salamanders, and then a strange group called the Sicilians that live in dirt and are very small. And if you've never heard of them, I don't blame you. Uh, they show up for the first time in the Triassic period, and you can even see the earliest frogs uh, in the in the Triassic, which is strange because frogs are really small and delicate. So I'm kind of surprised that we have many frog fossils at all. Also, coming off of the Permian period, the synapsids, which is the group of animals that mammals come from, were dominant in pretty much every terrestrial vertebrate niche. Everything from small herbivores to big, you know, cow-sized herbivores, and then small insect eaters to like lion-sized predators. In the Permian, the previous period to the Triassic, mammal ancestors had all of that covered. The end Permian mass extinction took away pretty much all of that diversity. And we're only and... left with three different groups. One of them is the mammal ancestors, and the other three um, still do a variety of things in the Triassic, but just sort of dwindled throughout the period, so they didn't even really make it to the extinction. And by the end, only the true mammal ancestors and potentially the first mammals were still around. Mm -hmm. However, like I said, the transition of eras, each era sort of has its own name. The Paleozoic era, mostly, I don't even think that has an age of whatever. Probably the age of fish would be my, my best thing, but... The Mesozoic era, which is what the Triassic starts, is very commonly referred to as the Age of Reptiles. Awesome. So that's what the Triassic was most known for. And boy, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So we're going to breeze through a lot of it. So firstly, lots of groups of reptiles went back to the ocean. I don't know why uh, all the stuff in there was dead, but... Uh, <laughs> is that a common thing? For things to go back to the ocean? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if, if you think about it, even just with mammals today, at least two groups did it fully with whales and, like, manatees. And then lots of groups have done it sort of partially with things like otters, uh, things like uh, pinnipeds, the seals and sea lions and walruses. Um, and I'm sure that there's a good number that are also sort of that vaguely semi-aquatic adapted and even lots and lots and lots uh, that are, are now extinct that we don't have anymore today. It is a fairly common thing, especially after extinctions, because like I said, there's all these open uh, niches. Mm -hmm. So the, the two famous ones from the Triassic are the ichthyosaurs, which 
are generally sort of considered the most aquatic adapted of pretty much all the, at least the reptiles that went back to the water. Uh, they are called ichthyosaurs, ichthy meaning fish and sore meaning reptiles. They are very fish-like. They're very compressed side to side. They have giant eyes on either side of their face. Um, they have a big tail fin like a, like a fish would. And they show up very, very quickly after the, the Permian extinction. And quickly, quickly, like within only a few million years, become very widespread and also very large. Hmm. Including ones up to 50 feet or longer. Does, God. Do people have like a reason why like this group of ichthyosaurs started to like boom during this period? I'm not really sure. I think okay. probably just different. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, people who work on ichthyosaurs uh, might have a, have a suggestion for that. I didn't really see one just in, you know, trying to cram in yeah. a bunch of light facts into this episode. Right. right. Um, but a lot of it is that even sort of the first ichthyosaurs we see are very aquatic. So it's sort of like we've talked about with things that fly. It's once you sort of commit to that route, mm-hmm. um, you know, quote unquote commit evolution doesn't have a, an end goal. But yeah. w- once you reach a certain point on that evolutionary trajectory, um, you're kind of committed. Uh, so right. to the point where ichthyosaurs don't have digits anymore. They just have paddles. So they couldn't even come up on land if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike things like uh, the other group of really famous Triassic uh, marine reptiles, the plesiosaurs, the ones that sort of look like the Loch Ness Monster. It was hypothesized for a long time that they probably could come up on land if they really had to, because they also had paddle feet. But unlike ichthyosaurs, which use their tail to propel themselves and their paddles to sort of steer, um, plesiosaurs used all four, you know, front and and back paddles because they also didn't have digits anymore um, to swim. So they sort of flapped through the water with both their front and back legs. And I haven't seen too much research that says they couldn't, especially some of the smaller ones, couldn't come up on land if they wanted to. Um but for them, we actually have pretty good evidence of their transition from land to water. Whereas ichthyosaurs, it's like, well, the first ones are already very ichthyosaur-like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it possible, since there's not really any good transitions about from the ichthyosaurs from uh, the period before the Triassic, that they were mm-hmm. already there? Um... Probably not. Okay. So, uh, mostly because in in the environments that ichthyosaurs lived in, um, we would get fossils. They live in shallow marine environments, and there were some that definitely lived in deeper marine, uh, especially some of like those big like fifty footers. You know, they're mm-hmm. not hanging out around reefs. <laughs> um, yeah. But some of the smaller ones, for sure, were doing ecologically really similar things to dolphins, and hmm. so. Um, living in the same sort of environments as dolphins, which are generally pretty good for leaving fossils that are then found. Um, so probably not. Um, it could be their, maybe their ancestors showed up right 
you know, before the extinction, like doing things in the water. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if they weren't dabbling in being aquatic that early, uh, just because of how quickly after the end Permian extinction that we see ichthyosaurs. They're also a really strange group of reptiles. They're not really close related to anything else. Huh. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's probably quite unlikely okay. that they had been around as ichthyosaurs before. Cool. But, alas, the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs were not the only ones to be going back to the water. There were lots of really strange shaped ones. Ones that looked a whole lot like turtles, even with shells and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that were doing stuff in the water, but were not turtles. Their shells were formed completely differently. So we know that they're not turtles, but they sure look a heck of a lot like a turtle. We had lots of very lizard-like reptiles. Uh, All sorts of things went back to the water. But the two big ones, like I said, are the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs. They're the only ones that make it out of the Triassic. On land, we see the actual ancestors of the first turtles, uh, as well as the first sphenodonts, which if you're not familiar, I don't at all blame you. Uh, that is a group that is sort of the sister group to modern lizards and includes only one, maybe two species today, which are the tuatara. Whoa, what's that? I've heard of these. Are they like turtle things? Uh, no, they, if you looked at one, so if you saw one at like a zoo or something, you would call it a lizard. It is extremely lizardy, except that it has kind of like a beak almost Hmm. a kind of turtle like beak, but otherwise looks Almost exactly like a typical lizard, but it is technically not a lizard because of some strange things that they do with their skulls and their teeth. Um, Mm. So not lizards, but the next best thing. So uh, before true lizards show up, these uh, sphenodonts and their close relatives did most of the things that lizards today do. Mm -hmm. We also have some real weirdos. (laughs) that do stuff in the Triassic. Uh, My favorite example is a type of reptile called Charovipteryx, which if you were just looking at it, if it was like in a tree and you were looking at it, it would look very much like a lizard, but it would surprise you a whole lot when it jumped out of the tree and glided away with its extremely long back legs that probably had some kind of membrane stretched between them so they could glide. Oh, it's like... The flying squirrel of reptiles. Right, but <laughs> just with the back legs. Okay, that's weird. Only the back legs. <laughs> so strange. So, um, yeah, jeez. To the point where most people that I know, like I, I don't know anybody who like studies this group of animals, but a lot of people are just kind of like, that doesn't seem like it should be able to glide. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know, you know, the specifics on it, but that's commonly what you see about that group of, of animals. And that's, like I said, just some of the weird things that life gets up to after a big extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, because keep in mind, no vertebrates had evolved to fly by the early Triassic. There was nothing but insects flying around. So if you could move through the air in any way, you didn't really have any competition for trying to catch bugs or something. Cool. However, all those other reptiles aside, the Triassic is best known for the other sort of main group of reptiles, the archosaurs. And so reptiles in general, 
are split into two sides. One side is the lizards and things like plesiosaurs and such. The other side is the archosaurs. And archosaurs are also split into two sides, one being the croc-like side and the other being the dinosaur-like side. And some others outside of these two main groups existed, but they were also weird and not particularly important. Uh, there are some fun examples. Uh, the rhynchosaurs had like triangular shaped skulls and also big rodent-like teeth on an, an otherwise very lizardy body. Hmm. Kind of strange. No idea really what they were doing, except that they were probably herbivorous. The phytosaurs, uh, not like put them up type of fight, uh, <laughs> but phyto as in plant, which is a very big misnomer because they were very clearly predatory. Uh, I have no idea who named them, but they were wrong. They are a group of very large and very superficially croc-like. Like if you saw one outside, if Fia, if you looked outside your window and saw one hanging out in the swamp, you would not really bat an eye. They look extremely like modern day crocodilians. We don't have crocodiles in Louisiana. Okay, yeah, I should clarify. By by croc like I'd mean just general crocodilian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I understand that. I was right. say, Ga yes. Gavin, that's racist. I mean, what do you think? Like, do all <laughs> do all crocodilians look the same to you? Uh, no, there's there's some very distinct differences. <laughs> yes, but uh, these look like generally more slender snouted uh, crocodilians. But if you look past, you know, from the neck back. It looks almost exactly like any other crocodilian that we would have today. Hmm. But they were not really all that closely related to crocs. And in fact, they did this well before even like the way, way, way descendants of modern crocodilians started doing it. Modern crocodilians, their ancestors at this time were trying to do what dinosaurs would later do really well in that they were large terrestrial predators and also herbivores. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. In the early part of the Triassic, the croc-like side generally were doing all the things that the synapsids did in the Permian. So everything from large to small herbivores, large to small predators. However, things like the dinosaurs didn't come along until about halfway through the Triassic, around 225 million years ago, as well as their close cousins, the pterosaurs, the first true flying vertebrates show up uh, about halfway through the Triassic. And while I'm sure the other groups of dinosaurs were around, or at least their ancestors, we really only have good dinosaur, true dinosaur evidence of theropods, which are your generally two-legged meat-eating ones things like T-Rex, Velociraptor, etc. Mm -hmm. And the ancestors of the sauropods, the large, long neck herbivorous dinosaurs. And they were a very far cry from things like T-Rex that you know and love. The theropods were mostly small, like chicken to coyote sized, were the vast majority of them. Some of them did get about a, a bit bigger. Things like Herrerasaurus is an early theropod or theropod adjacent thing that was about lion sized. Hmm. But the sauropodomorphs, so the sauropods and their not quite sauropod relatives, uh, were the first group of dinosaurs to do like real well. They could, could get potentially even up to the size of like small elephants. 
And so they were, they were up there with some of the biggest animals on the planet, at least on land, uh, well before the rest of dinosaurs really took off. So that's generally the life that was around in the Triassic. But you've, you've seen the title. This is an extinction episode after all. Yeah, we're not talking yeah. about life on this one. No, we're talking about how a lot of things die. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting to the good part. Oh, exactly. Exactly. All right. So throughout the latter part of the Triassic, even though Pangaea was still together, the continents were still sort of shifting around. Just because they were together doesn't mean that they were static. And if you look up the end Triassic mass extinction, the most common thing you'll see associated with it is this thing called CAMP. C-A-M-P. Hmm. Because scientists sure love our acronyms. Yeah, we do. So CAMP is short for the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province. Which is to say a whole bunch of lava and magma. <laughs> <laughs> so, remember back to the Antipermian, the worst mass extinction in history. Also caused by extreme volcanism. Well, a short 50 million years later, it happens again. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. So oh, depending boy. on how you count it, this one had even more lava than that one. What do you mean depending on how you count it? By land area coverage, this one had about a third more. But okay. by volume, uh, the end Permian was bigger. Gotcha. So depending on which metric you're looking at, it was more or less equivalent. Okay. So, and to put it in perspective, this one covered up to around 11 million square kilometers, or for us Americans, about 4.2 million square miles. That's a whole lot of land. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Can we have like a comparison? Like that is roughly the equivalent of what? So that is about 10% larger than the land area of the United States, including Alaska. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Noted. Yeah. So that's a, it's a bit of lava. That's that's quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of lava. So, um, regardless of how you count it, whether it is area or volume, that's a heck of a lot of lava, which produces a heck of a lot of gas. Uh, why? So, uh, there's just always naturally some gases trapped within the earth. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Just as, uh, the tectonic cycle works as, you know, continents get sucked down into the planet and then, uh, naturally some gases will be brought down with them. Oh, so, I see. Yep. In, in any volcanic eruption, there's always some kind of gas component. It usually also depends on what part of the earth's interior that the magma it was sourced from. Mm. Depends on what kind of gas it is. Um, some some fun, much internal geochemistry that I don't particularly understand. But yeah. um, depending on where you know this lava was sourced from within the Earth, a, a variety of things could happen. Sometimes a lot of the gas that is given off is carbon dioxide, which as we've talked about time and time again is generally not great for the planet uh, or for the current life on the planet when a bunch of carbon dioxide is pumped into the atmosphere very quickly. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Uh, 
Um, Spoilers to right now. Yeah. And so carbon dioxide just increases temperatures, which depending on how quickly that happens, uh, it can happen too fast for life to adapt. And those things go extinct. However, a different gas that volcanoes can also give off can cause cooling. Ooh, like what? Um, things like uh, like various sulfides, mostly. Really? Yeah. I didn't know and that. also the various ash. Ash can also function as a way to block out the sun and reflect sunlight back out into uh. space if there's a bunch of it in the atmosphere. So depending on which model you're looking at, there was either a whole bunch of warming or a whole bunch of cooling at the end of the Triassic that caused the extinction. And you can't tell which one is more likely? The general consensus is that it was the warming. That's what I had always heard. Mm. Um, but there's a little curveball thrown into that at the end that I'll sort of circle back to. Okay. So uh, the way that this can... I think it's pretty obvious how the warming can be bad. We've all heard enough about that for recent times. Uh, the cooling also can be quite bad depending on how quickly it happens, especially if for the last, you know, few dozen million years, there's been almost no ice on the planet. A, a you know, sharp cold snap is just very hard to adapt to. Yeah. Regardless of whether it was warming or cooling, both of those can cause ocean acidification, which is something uh, that yes. is very well documented in the Triassic mm -hmm. period. And for all of those nice, wonderful marine invertebrates, uh, ocean acidification is a, is a bad time. Rip. R.I.P. It basically, like, dissolves their shell, right? Or I'm forgetting how... It, it depends how acidic. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, it doesn't purely dissolve them as much as it just makes it harder for them to get the right. carbonate to begin with. Yeah, it makes it harder for them to make their shell. I had it the wrong way. Right. So okay. for anyone not aware, things like clams, other bivalves, um, mollusks in general, so things like gastropods as well, snails and such, uh, make their shells out of calcium carbonate, which is more or less the stuff that you find in your coffee maker, uh, like the white crusty stuff, more or less the same. And just like you put vinegar on running that through your coffee maker to get rid of it, uh, acid dissolves calcium carbonate. And so while just a small pH change, even a, a pretty big one like what we see here doesn't outright dissolve the shell of, say, a clam, um, it does make it harder for them. It, it basically costs more energy for them to make more shell, which they constantly do as they just live. And so that takes up more of their energy, which means they have to eat more food. And they're just generally not as able to live because they just need to spend more energy to just exist. Would this be an example of like a negative feedback loop? Um, no, this would actually be a positive feedback loop in a lot of ways. Okay. So uh, with, with the, especially with the warming hypothesis, there is uh, almost constantly stores of methane down at the the deepest parts of the ocean and it's basically frozen in the water and as water temperatures gr go up 
a little bit of that melts and releases methane gas out into the atmosphere. Methane gas is a much more potent greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide is. And so that methane just bumps up temperatures even more, which causes more frozen methane to melt and release more methane and so on and so on. So the more warmer it gets, the quicker it continues to get warmer. Yeah, so bad times. And uh, given that this is the last episode before uh, the midterm elections here in the United States, uh, I would just like (laughs) to say, please vote for uh, climate conscious people on your ballot. Uh, it's it's real important, <laughs> yeah. So that things like this don't happen. Yeah, that yeah. Because uh, spoilers, we're going to talk about how a lot of things died, um, and we're like I said, we're trying real hard to kill all those corals. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I I like coral personally, so I think we should not do that. Um, so make sure you vote. Uh, a week from yesterday. Anywho, there is actually another hypothesis, completely not volcano-related hmm. to that? the extinction, in that there was actually, uh, if you happen to look at a map of Quebec, Canada, of all places, if you go basically straight north of the state of Maine, you'll see a very circular-looking lake. It's about hmm. three miles across. And it has it is perfectly circular and has a big island in the middle. This lake, Lake Manicougan, is called an annular lake, which means a lake created by the impact of a meteorite. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And like I said, this is a lake that is about three miles across. And while it was known for a long time that this lake crater was Triassic in age, as we, you know, were better able to sort of date stuff, uh, we realized that this was too early, about about 14 million years too early to be associated with the extinction, but this sort of got people looking for more craters, and there is actually quite a bit of craters from around this time. None of them really line up with the extinction all that well, but um, just in general, another thing stressing out life at the time is that there was a lot of meteor impacts at this time. Just kind of like thing of note. Right. And so, alas, we get to the section, who died? Everybody. In the oceans, yeah, pretty much. Dang. So, most benthic organisms, Fia. My boys. What what, what does benthic mean for, for the people? Um, it means bottom floor. So anything living on the bottom floor of the ocean. Exactly. Uh, and particularly, in this case, benthic things that can't really move. Uh, you know, because even things like, say, for example, like a crab. A lot of crabs are benthic because they're not up in the water, but they can at least move. Um, most things like bivalves, brachiopods, corals, they can't, most of them can't move themselves as much as some other things. So... Those are typically the usual suspects because they can't go find better water conditions somewhere else as easily. So they are typically the usual suspects to look at, to look for a mass extinction. All of them did real bad. Yeah. Uh, All of those marine reptiles, with the exception of the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs, went extinct. 
And even then, the ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs really struggled. Uh, the ichthyosaurs will never again get to the point where they are as speciose. You know, their their diversity will never get to this point again. Is also uh, their disparity, how different they are from one another, the sort of shape diversity, uh, will never be as high for ichthyosaurs again, even though they do make it all the way into the Cretaceous period. And the plesiosaurs also got hit pretty hard, even though they had just barely gotten to be true plesiosaurs before the extinction. Tough luck. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also of note, uh, a group of animals called the conodonts, which I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast up to this point, but they yeah, are... Yeah, what are they? Yeah, they're like an eel-like vertebrate thing? Eel-like vertebrate? That, that's a couple oxymorons together, I think. Well, don't eels have vertebrae? Yes, eels okay. are fully uh, bony fish. Are they really? Yep. Yeah. Same as a perch wild. or a bass or whatever. Yep. Absolutely wild. Yeah. But these these look very superficially eel-like, again, from the, the head back. Uh, their head, especially their mouth, is like this nightmare cage of teeth. Um, but their, their teeth are very specific uh so each species is only around for a very short amount of time so they, these were around all the way in the cambrian period at the beginning of you know complex life and they finally go extinct at the end of the triassic period which is a real shame because like i said each species is only around for a very short amount of time so you we would frequently use them as like a okay you have this species you know within a ballpark of only a couple million years when in time you are. They're called index fossils. Hmm. So, a shame that they made it through three? Yeah, three previous mass extinctions only to to get knocked out by this one. Yeah. Weirdly, though, fish seem to kind of do fine. How is that possible? Hmm. That's what I... Asked as well, because I'm like, well, if all the stuff that fish eat is doing bad, you'd think fish do bad. But guess they found something else to eat. <laughs> yeah, so generally, it kind of seems like fish in general were declining through like pretty much the entire latter half of the Triassic period. Mm-hmm. But the extinction rates don't really go up at all around the the end of the Triassic period. Lots of hypotheses why. Um, A lot of, I did see a lot of people sort of suspect that this is probably a bias in the fossil record. So um, biases are really important with fossils because there's a lot of ways that bias can be introduced, whether it's just that, hey, the rocks from the middle Triassic that have fish are a lot more abundant in places where there's universities and are easier to study. Mm. or we just have more of them, or etc. There's just more areas with those rocks. Um, so it's kind of suspected that, yeah, they probably did better than, you know, all those benthic invertebrates, but they still probably got hit fairly hard. We just can't see it. My uh, dubious hypothesis uh, with no background information whatsoever to back this up is that they all went cannibal. I mean, that could be too. Yeah. Fish do tend to eat a lot of fish. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just sort of the the base of the food chain is sort of where I get a little confused at it because I I didn't really see almost anything about how like single celled in things did. Yeah, I wasn't able to see. I'm sure that there is some kind of paper about that somewhere, but I could not find it. So, do with that information what you will. Once we get up on land, all of those large crocodilian relatives go extinct. Only the smaller ones made it that, you know, were the ancestors of our modern crocodilians. So all the, that big diversity that there was in the Triassic period, filling up pretty much every niche, all of those are gone. Pretty much all of the weirdos, like that weird hind limb gliding one, all of those weirdos go extinct. Man, I was those rooting for those guys. What's that? I was rooting for them. I know. Like, there are some things in the fossil record that are just real cool yeah. that I really wish that we had today. Or it's like, screw bringing back mammoths. I want <laughs> this guy back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also a, another very strange group that I didn't talk about before uh, called the Drapanosaurs that have a gigantic thumb claw probably lived in trees and also had a claw at the end of their tail that we have no idea what it used it for do we know how it worked no that's me i would love to see this well it's it's we don't even really know what they did in their environment there's been debate whether they lived in trees or whether they burrowed Hmm. And with the trees, I can kind of see why having a, a claw at the end of your tail would help. If you, right, that's if, you know, not too hard to yeah. figure out. Right. But it's like, if you were burrowing, I, I don't know what that would be useful for. But the hands kind of look like they'd be pretty good for burrowing. I don't know. What if it's both? That could be. But regardless, those weirdos go extinct. Uh, those phytosaurs, the ones that look a whole lot like crocs but are not crocs, go extinct. And dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and mammals actually do more or less fine. Yay. I'll take it. Still still hit, you know, they still, you know, suffered some losses. Those pro sor- or the uh, sauropodomorphs that are not quite the true sauropods, they go extinct leaving only the the true sauropods left. A lot of the strange theropods, like Herrerasaurus that I mentioned earlier, Herrerasaurus is very strange. It has a lot of weird features, but it and all of its relatives go extinct in this extinction. Mm. But dinosaurs in general, completely fine coming out of the end of it. Because as we know, they're around for at least the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. So they do pretty well. All and right, then. I, I tried to look. I really tried to figure out why. Because yeah. even their close relatives, you know, the, the crocodilian-like ones, are still quite closely related to them, but were just absolutely wrecked by this extinction. And I couldn't find a great answer, with the exception of, potentially that global cooling hypothesis instead of the global warming hypothesis. Hmm. 
uh, a paper from this year suggested that, you know, this cooling happened and that also that this would have advantaged dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and mammals because they're all endothermic. They make their own internal body heat. I always forget that. Yeah. So whether this was the case in these early dinosaurs is unsure. And especially with pterosaurs, I, I don't know how much information we have for that, but definitely later ones were in both dinosaurs and pterosaurs. And then similarly with mammals, if if they're true mammals, then yeah, they probably were making their own internal body heat. So that was just sort of a thought that sort of passed through those that author's brain. I didn't read the paper itself, so I'm not really sure how solid that paper is, but that is one potential reason why yeah. dinosaurs might have done okay. Until, you know. Well. You know. Spoilers. <laughs> spoilers, Mike. <laughs> and so that takes us out of the Triassic period and brings us fully into the age of dinosaurs, the Jurassic period. And Yay. dinosaurs really start to take off. And once again, with all those weird, crazy reptiles gone, things look much more normal to us. In the Jurassic, we see uh, true frogs showing up for the first time. We see, uh, and we're spoiling the eventual Jurassic episode, but uh, mm. birds show up for the first time. Mammals start to look much, much more recognizable. Um, even things like snakes and true lizards and, and turtles, big major parts of their ecosystems in the Jurassic. So aside from the dinosaurs, uh, the Jurassic looks pretty normal. <laughs> so... Nice. But we'll we'll cross that bridge when we talk about the Jurassic. Yeah. And we are not going to cross that today now, are we? Absolutely not. <laughs> Do we have anything else left to add for this one? Go vote, please. Yeah. Yes. Please do. If you are a, a citizen of the United States, uh, please vote the maximum number of times that is allowed, which is one. Which um, is one. Correct. But, uh, yes, please go vote. Um, and, yeah, we'll be able to tell you how you guys did the next time that you guys hear from us. But until then, this has been episode 98 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That's Gavin and Fia. And we'll see all of you guys next week. Take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.